Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to another amazing um, Saturday session continuation of um, Surah Al Nisa, day nine. Amazing. Um, once again, I have to call attention to yesterday's outrageously amazing khutbah. Um, the khutbahs here are just on fire, so um, you absolutely have to watch. The thing that always strikes me is that you always learn something new. And at least for me, yesterday, um, I had never heard even the term necropolitics. It's about the politics of the dead, um, I guess, or like understanding people as alive or living dead. I mean, necropolitics, I don't know exactly how to define that, but from what I learned from yesterday's amazing um, khutbah is how to better understand our world. And it's the idea of, um, you know, whether you consider a people or a group of people alive and worthy of justice, or if you consider them effectively um, the living dead, like they don't matter, so they don't actually need to have justice. And this explains so clearly in our world what's happening when you see the difference in treatment um, between the Ukrainian refugees and all the Muslim refugees around the world who have been refugees forever. And just, it's, you know, it's really disheartening. It's really painful as a Muslim to see this disparity in treatment. But I think um, when you listen to a khutbah like yesterday um, and you understand exactly the, the dynamics that there is this, there's a way to explain it. It's clearly racism, but it's much more than that. Um, it was an incredible eye-opener, very, very powerful, helped I, me as a Muslim understand my world better, um, and then bringing us back to the idea of the imperative of justice and this beauty, beautiful idea that you know God is justice, justice is God, that even if you don't believe in God, when you are um, fulfilling justice, you are actually serving divinity, which, I mean, there's just so much beauty and power in yesterday's khutbah. Um, so highly encourage you to watch it. It's a game changer. It's a, a, a perspective changer. Um, and, you know, if you don't have time to watch it again, you know, read the summary. It's, it's truly, um, I think anytime you learn something that really shakes your world or helps you see something in a very different way, it's just, it, it makes you feel, it makes you come alive. Um, and one of the key questions from yesterday, that the title of the khutbah is, are you alive? And there's so much to that question. Um, and, you know, do you live in a way that you are alive or do you accept life as sort of, I'm already dead, so what does it matter? And, it, you know, so the, the questions that were posed in yesterday's khutbah were really, really penetrating and very, very important. Um, you know, on that point, it's amazing to believe that um, Ramadan is literally two weeks away. Um, it's just, it's mind-blowing because I feel like Ramadan was just a few months ago. It does not feel like it's been a, a year. And when I think back to what we were doing a year ago and what, you know, what Ramadan felt like and how, you know, even the surahs that we were engaged in and what, what it was like to interact with our community and the excitement and all the different things happening. And then, every, and then everything's happened since then to where we are today. Um, it's, it's tremendous. And I even remember the Ramadan before that because we were still in California and we were thinking about Project Illumin before it had fully taken shape. Um, and, you know, I remember at that time that um, the professor wrote this very powerful piece and, and even spoke about this in several khutbahs, that, you know, we as Muslims should think about our lives um, by counting the Ramadans. It's like, you know, we, our life is, is a certain number of Ramadans, and it's important for us to think from one Ramadan to the next. How have we grown? What have we done? How have we changed? How have we transformed? 
you know, and it's in that we none of us know how many Ramadans we have in our lifetime or, you know, if this will be our last Ramadan. Um, and it just was a reminder, you know, between sitting through this incredible chuppah yesterday and thinking about Ramadan and then thinking about this halakha, you know, like right now, every moment is such a blessed moment in time. Like we will never be able to recapture this Project Illumin even, you know, experience again once it's over. Um, you know, even sitting in the chutbah yesterday, it struck me, we're not always going to have chutbahs like this. We're so blessed to be here every Friday and to be listening to these powerful lectures that transform our world. But there will come a day, and we have no idea how soon or, or how long from now, that this will no longer be our reality. And so we just have to, you know, just underscores how important it is to, you know, grab hold of every moment and take care, um, you know, to take advantage of every blessing and every every time and every gathering. So, you know, like when I think of how many, you know, um, surahs we've covered since last Ramadan, I didn't. I was thinking of of going to count them. I didn't have time to do that beforehand, but maybe I'll do that for for next session. Um, but it, you know, it's just such an incredible reminder of what what a special process we're going through right now. And I wanted to share, um, actually, it's, it's been so beautiful. We've had a lot of people that have come up. Um, we're, we're still doing the adopt a program. So I just wanted to share with you some really beautiful news because, um, you know, I think people are starting to find out about, you know, Project Illumin. Um, I actually had a really beautiful conversation with um, a, a couple in, um, who had been introduced to Asuli and the um, Halakas just about a month ago. And they um, were saying they they watch it two hours a day, and they feel like there's something wrong if they skip a day, like something's missing in their lives if they miss a day. And um, it was really cute because they were like, you know, we, we feel like we're kind of slow because we're only able to sit through three hours at a time. And I thought to myself, oh my God, it's amazing. God bless you. Um, but so they actually um, gave us a, a huge gift for Ramadan um, because they were so excited. They wanted to help us. Um, garner more support and so they offered to um, donate to create a matching program which I wrote about in our, our weekly uh, my weekly email yesterday but so um, they're trying to also get their friends to, to to jump in but so they have promised that during Ramadan for anyone who donates they will match dollar for dollar up to forty thousand um, dollars and that is an incredible gift um, alhamdulillah um, we had another um, couple that um, sponsored Asura, and they came back um, and said they wanted to adopt the remaining um, surahs that we had available um, that were in the 30th Jews. And so in one, sw one swoop, they adopted 10 surahs. So there are no longer any more surahs in the 30th Jews that are available for adoption. I'm sorry about that. Um, and like, actually, they did it right before another chronic book club wanted to come in and adopt one. And I said, I'm really sorry. You know, all of the ones from the 30th Jews are gone. So they actually chose another one. Um, and they, so we've got a book club that, you know, I think has like, I don't know, 30 members or something like that. And so they're sponsoring a surah. And so, and they're sponsoring one that hasn't, that we haven't covered yet. So that's really exciting. Everybody's sort of waiting for that one to come. Um, so I, you know, I was looking through the list of the surahs that we have and, you know, we've, we've I think now adopted, or I, actually I don't know the actual count, but um, I've changed the website so you can see what is remaining and what is incredible is some of these surahs we've already covered and I can't believe that no one's claimed them, but let me just mention some of them which are incredible. Al-Anfal, Al-Rad, Al-Hijr, Al-Mu'minun, Al-Furqan, Al-Shuara, Al-Ankabut, Luqman, Sajda, 
Al-Saba, Fatir, Al-Safat, Rafer, Al-Fusilat, Al-Shura, Zukrof, Zuhan, Al-Akaf, Al-Hujurat, Kaf, Al-Dariat, Al-Tur, Al-Tagabun, Al-Talak, Al-Marish, Noah, Al-Jin, Al-Mudathir, Mudathir, sorry, Al-Kiyama, and Al-Mursalat. These are the ones we've already covered, and so there's a bunch that we haven't covered that are still available, like Al-Hajj, Al-Nur, Al-Azhab, Al-Hashr, Al-Mumtahana, Al-Saf, Al-Jumma, Al-Munafikun, Al-Tahrim, Al-Hakka, so um, they're going like hotcakes, people, <laughs> for Ramadan. Um, this is a great way to, um, you know, exponentially increase your blessings. So um, think uh, about adopting How, how many have not been adopted yet? Um, I, I haven't numbered these, so no. what does that look like? I'm not sure. But no. we've, done, we've done really well. I think, you know, over probably around 70 we've adopted. So it's really great. Um, okay. And then... Um, on the note of, of buying gifts for Ramadan, I, I've been announcing and we've been announcing on social media that um, in honor of our virtual events, we were able to get our publisher to offer a very special sale just in time for Ramadan, 30% off on the paperback versions of Search for Beauty um, and God Knows the Soldiers and Reasoning with God, which are three of the most incredible books. Um, if you just read those, it'll transform your life and you'll know more than the vast majority of people on the planet <laughs> so it's they're really easy re i mean actually reasoning with god is not an easy read but um search for beauty and and god knows the soldiers are are you know really life transforming and not difficult reads so highly recommend that you just have to go to the roman.com website um, there's a special code that if you you know go on our website you can find it if you go on any of our social media you can find it so definitely um you know buy a book for yourself for your friends um your family it's a great gift for ramadan and then, um, of course, tomorrow, I'm so excited, we have an incredible event um, where we're doing a Q&A on the topic of spiritual abuse and sexual abuse um, at the hands of religious authority. So it's, you know, an incredible opportunity. Um, we, we have a program, actually, um, that we, we have um, put together. It is a Q&A, but we um, have a curated Q&A where we've picked questions that we think um, are really important. Um, there's a lot of confusion around, um, you know, this issue of uh, what what we should do as Muslims either as individuals or as a community for people who have been abused and, and how do we define abuse and what does it look like and power dynamics behind it um, so we wanted to make sure that we cover really important questions and then hopefully have time to open up to other questions at the end so please join us it starts tomorrow at four o'clock um, if you've registered on zoom um, you can join us you know through zoom if you can only you know connect in through YouTube we'll be live streaming through YouTube as well so and of course it'll be up on YouTube after the fact and it should be really um, really important and really amazing so we've had a lot of people register so far so if um, you go to zoom and if you find that it tells you you can't register anymore because it's or you know you, you can't enter the room because it's full then just go to YouTube so you know there's no problem in getting access to that so um, yeah, we have so many exciting things happening. We have some, some exciting things coming around the corner for Ramadan, too. So, um, you know, I just feel really blessed that we have this continuing opportunity to learn. And um, so looking forward to today's session. And um, please keep us in your prayers. And inshallah, I'm wishing everyone, um, you know, a wonderful last, I guess, week, couple of weeks before we, we jump into Ramadan again. So. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. We haven't scheduled it yet. In the no. So do you want me to talk about it since you asked? <laughs>
So we have actually, um, we have an event that we're trying to schedule, which is actually very cool. Um, if you've been following us on um, the khutbahs, you know that Sheikh started talking about this incredible scholar named Hassan Tarhan al-Maliki. Um, very sadly, he's been um, in prison um, in Saudi um, since 2017, and um, he is, you know, when as soon as Sheikh became aware of his work, um, and he's, he's a scholar of Quran, he's been jumping in. And actually, just this last week, he told me to watch um, this video that was put together. There's a, there's a, okay, sorry, I'm like kind of, uh, there's a channel called Quranic Islam. This was created by a student of Hassan Farhan al Maliki in trying to spread the work of his teacher. Um, and this, it, it's an incredible um, resource, but what was really striking for me, I listened to this one um, video that the professor told me about called Quranic Islam versus, I think it's called Divine Islam versus, um, inher uh, versus Inherited Islam. We'll get the name for it. Anyway, I shared it on my, on my um, Facebook. So what's truly amazing is Hassan Farhan al-Maliki comes at the Quran from the vantage point of history. And Sheikh has come at it through the point of law and Sharia. And he, Sheikh has said, you know, I feel like this man is my intellectual twin. They arrive at the same conclusions, but from completely different angles. Like they're not, they weren't even aware of one another. I don't know if even Hassan Farhan al-Maliki is aware of, of Dr. Bufadol, but it's like, it's so amazing to see this triangulation, this validation of, you know, everything that we've been learning um, and so it's fascinating because the students of Hassan Farhan al-Maliki, who we've been in contact with now, are not familiar with what we've been doing here. But the things that if you listen to some of these videos and the things that, that Hassan Farhan al-Maliki says, you'll, they're very familiar. You feel that this is exactly what we're talking about. And it's so powerful because it's just when you hear the truth and you understand it can you know, be arrived at and from so many different angles, it's really powerful. So we got in contact with um, Khaled, who is the owner of this YouTube channel, Chronic Islam, and um, we were so happy to connect with him and we're planning to do a conversation with him. So hopefully to feature and highlight the work of Hassan Farhan al-Maliki and also just you know, to share more about our joint you know, effort to elevate the Quran. So um, that's something very special that we're looking forward to, inshallah, during Ramadan. So that and a few other surprises that I will re reveal at a different time. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so how, uh, thank you again for joining us. Looking forward to an amazing session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalameen. Wa subhanallah al-aliyyil-azim. Wa masalli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. Wa ala alihi. وعلى أصحابه وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Just to connect with where we left off I'm told we stopped at We notice in Surah An-Nisa something that, that warrants considerable reflection in that um, when it comes to a program of reform and these 
incremental um, changes in society. And as we said repeatedly, that the general theme of these changes in society is to overcome forms of istidhaf, forms of disempowerment, um, Surah An-Nisa focuses on hypocrisy, on nifaq, as a phenomena, and on the, the as and again, this is just review, the ways that a defeat occurs through lack of commitment or lack of understanding internally. And so in many ways, I mean, Surah Al-Nisa'i, you find within it a, 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 a constant refrain directed at believers themselves about all the ways through which they can they can fail their own potential. And it addresses various types of hypocrisy and various levels of hypocrisy from those who are in a situation of shikak those who are actually hostile to Allah and the Prophet, hostile to the normative program that Islam came with, to those who are weak uh, in, in the fact that they can't ta take a firm stand uh, that sides clearly with principle rather than being, rather than as we talked about sort of making excuses. Um, and minimizing their own lack of commitment and the effects of that lack of commitment. Okay. But at the same time that we can, by studying as much as we can of the Sira, and the, the topic of the Sira, of course, is a very big topic because it, it, sometimes discerning getting over the ideological tropes and the and getting to the historical facts or the history behind the ideology uh, is a is a challenge so often when we dig through the sira we it's often a very involved process because we even look at 
um, the Rijal involved in certain riwayas and whether these, at certain points in the riwaya, there is a political bias, i.e. the ideology, a theological bias, but that's a very big topic. And then to understand the, the historical circumstances that the Quran were addressing so that we can understand the principle that the Quran is upholding um, is an involved process. And especially when it comes to the issue of the hypocrites because the Islamic tradition um, Because of later political schisms, later political disputes about the Sahaba and Adalat uh, the Sahaba, the the how we talk about the Sahaba and so on, um, especially the Muhaddisun, especially Ahl al-Hadith. We're often reluctant to preserve the types of traditions that would give us an accurate historical picture of what was unfolding in Medina and that the, the circumstance and the context for the Quranic verses that addressed especially the lack of commitment, the weakness within Medinian society. Um, so this is important to bear in mind because Surat al-Nisa, it is as if, it, not as if, but it is in fact reminding us that to understand this moral program and to commit to this moral program requires transparency with the self, requires resolution, and requires one to get over oneself. The biggest obstacle to any project of reform, the, the, what always stands before a human being, and what Ever ideals they aspire to, you, you know, you can, you have a dream, and more concretely from a dream is an ideal, which then could gel into a goal. But often what prevents a human being from virtuously going after a moral goal is the self. They stumble in the self. It's as if the, 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 the self is something that you just simply trip over. Because the self is often not calibrated towards idealistic goals. But the self is a very selfish being, a very selfish entity. It is like a gazibiya, a, a, a gravitational force, right? 
you have the self that from the time you you come to earth and you you cry because you are centered around your own needs you feel hungry you cry you feel discomfort you cry you feel gas you cry etc etc you mature from that you grow from that into the world of ideas and if your development is healthy you understand that you are more than the sum total of urges the self which is conditioned upon urges from the point of birth is about what you desire but so on the one hand as you intellectually grow and your brain grows and if your development is healthy you learn to to exist beyond yourself because beyond the self is allah beyond the self is creation beyond the self is the co- concepts like justice beyond the self is concepts like mercy the self is is often by itself and in of itself it's devoid of abstractions it is the intellect that comes in and teaches you an abstract principle okay so there is a centrifugal force that pushes from within outwards right so you are pushing from that self involved self towards the 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 abstract principles that in order to attain by definition if you attain these principles in a social setting and it's a, it's a very big philosophical question whether attaining them be in other than a social setting whether these concepts still have meaning or not so it's a it's something debated in philosophy whether if there is no society and the only person that exists on the face of this earth is a single person a single unitary person whether a concept like justice has any meaning whatsoever or a concept like mercy has any meaning whatsoever or a concept like compassion has any meaning whatsoever and we don't need to get into that philosophical debate because it's you know it's a protracted one but the least we can say is that the quranic outlook when it always talks about ideas like justice or mercy or uh, any of the virtues that the quran focuses on they require going beyond the self to achieve a social goal put differently 
if you live and die serving no one but yourself, that is a selfish existence that is not consistent with Quranic principles. So a centrifugal force is one that sort of draws you out of yourself outwards towards abstract concepts. But at the same time, there's a counter force, a centripetal force, in that the self is constantly doubting. Often we don't doubt the, the, the principle itself unless you become very jaded, where you say, well, I doubt that justice exists. But it doubts the dynamics and the mechanics of achieving these goals. So even if you say, I believe in justice, the centripetal force of the self comes in and says, well, this justice and, and this is the sort of the, the 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 often the heart of the phenomena that we call hypocrisy. Just this justice cannot be achieved except at your own expense. That the principle is not achievable without the self convincing you that it is at a cost that is unacceptable to the self. If, what does, think of what the seerah of the Prophet and the entire Islamic project was about. It ultimately comes and says, there are principles here and what Allah wants you to do is to be willing to sacrifice and sacrifice to the point of even sacrificing the self, giving up all expectations of entitlement. Those are the truly guided and it doesn't help us when we adopt the naive perspective that this was everyone at the time of the Prophet. It wasn't. And in fact, it, it, it was a small circle of people around the Prophet that had attained that level where they no longer looked at what sacrifices the self is making. The vast majority of human beings, however, are of a very different nature. The vast majority of human beings conflate between the principle and their interaction with the principle. So while they can believe in the principle, 
often the only way they assess the success of the pursuit of the principle is through the prism and the specter of the self-interested self. So they look at the principle and they say, are we really achieving this principle? Well, the, they can't go beyond, well, how is it affecting me? And this is the heart of what the Quran often describes as the dynamic of hypocrisy. There are individuals who can, do they really not understand that people are being given their due or, or that the Quran is demanding that the rights that accrue to the benefit of certain people, that in fact they are entitled to these rights? And the answer is that abstractly they can. And so many of them, when they took the shahada and promised to try to be good Muslims, they were sincere about it. But when it came to the pragmatics of what that required, they would look at their own losses and as often happens at the heart of hypocrisy, you say, what creates a hypocrite? What creates a hypocrite is the belief that they have been victimized and the belief that they have, that this goal, whatever the goal is, the, the, the goal of justice, oh, well, but yeah, but I'm paying an inordinate cost. I'm paying a cost that I should not justly be required to pay. I am being, I am, be, I am paying an unfair cost. But here's the rub. Why is it unfair? Well, how you define what's fair or not for the self depends on what you expect for the self. So when you are told, as we will see, that you can't mix the money that belongs to an orphan with your, you can't mix their trade with your trade and refuse to grant them their money. And the, often the argument made is that, well, if we allow orphans to, to especially when the orphans were women, were girls, if we allow them to inherit their money, to gain control of their money, and we allow them to marry outside the family, because the practice of very widespread practice was to simply obstruct the marriage, especially of orphans who were girls, to simply never allow them to marry, and this way make sure that their money never become, gets in, into their control. 
And this way, you, sus- you, you, you make sure that the money never leaves the wealth of the tribe or the wealth of the clan. Now, you can see, you know, it sounds good. Yeah, you should give orphans their rights. And all the people that we have records of that that ran into problems with the Quranic program initially agreed, absolutely, yeah, we should give them their rights. But when it came to the implementation Okay, now allow these orphans to marry. And yes, leave with the inheritance that is due to them. Leave the tribe and the clan. The argument was, that's unfair. How can you demand? Is it enough that we are supporting your war effort? Is it enough that we have to buy you weapons? Isn't enough that now we have to buy horses and train horses because we, we were told that the war effort needs horses and needs camels and needs better shields and needs better swords and we need to bring in metal workers who are more expensive, the work was more expensive material and now on top of that, you are actually demanding that the clan impoverish itself. First, you said women inherit, and maybe we can make sure that these women marry within the family. But orphans were a bigger problem because family members didn't often didn't want to marry the orphans. People who would want to marry orphans were often outsiders to the tribal and clan system, al-Mawali. Although, again, the Prophet ﷺ condemned that and said that this, this classism um, is unacceptable. But tribes remained resistant to that. And but when these orphan girls marry Imola, marry among the Mawali, it really meant that their inheritance left the tribe and left the clan. I think it is very significant that Surah An-Nisa, when it talks to these people, it doesn't describe them as weak of faith. It describes them as hypocrites. As in the same way that it describes those who would go to the Prophet and make excuses so that they will not join the army as hypocrites. Hypocrisy is shab, it's of gradations. But it is the hypocrisy of the self that defeats the most lofty moral goals. It is not, and that is my skepticism about academic abstractions, it is easy to form if you're intelligent, if God has given you a high IQ and given you a certain type of intelligence, 
you can, and I, I've been in academia long enough to, to see how people go about constructing theoretical arguments that sound very compelling. It, and once you learn the art of how to do it, it becomes like building a model. What is far more difficult is to actually manifest any type of ability in pursuing a moral object without falling apart. That is far more difficult. Theoretical, I mean, the reason we have private prisons, privately run prisons, is because of law professors who came up with fancy theoretical abstractions. It was never anything off their back. The reason we have the custody laws today and things like termination of parental rights, it was because of very fancy theoretical academic constructs. But it is not, the people who made these theoretical constructs were never at risk of being the subject of the theoretical constructs. In fact, I know one of them in my law school who played a very prominent role in California family law and the laws of especially custody and termination of parental rights. And I know her, and she's never been married, and she's never had children, and she was completely averse to the idea of ever having children. And she's now retired. But that's the way it goes, right? To actually commit to a cause and to discipline the self, to mold the self, to serve the cause is the real challenge. So that the self is not molding the cause to itself, but you mold the self to the cause. Okay, so now, so we will come back to, um, to, to the problem of hypocrisy. But up to 122, then Surat al-Nisa takes, it's not a, it, 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 it's not a discourse that is limited to Ahl al-Kitab, but it responds to an ongoing reality that we know sets in from the times of Medina. And especially a reality we find in Surah An-Nisa is that those who I'm not, I don't want to say, you know, it's, it's ideologically, it's easy to say those who are weak of faith. And when we say weak of faith, then we, we make them into an, an other people. We other them. What I mean is, is that, you know, you, you read the Quran and you feel, oh, I'm, see, I'm a good Muslim. I'm reading the Quran. And then when you read in a tafsir that 
it's talking about those weak of face, then you accept yourself. Then you say, well, it's not talking about me because I'm not weak of faith. Uh, the proof is I'm reading the Quran. But that's the, that's the ideological troping of the tradition. What is it really talking about? Distill it into its basic historical elements into real-life situations. People who had become Muslim, but they are having a problem with implementing the empowerment laws or the laws of hukuk, of rights, that we've talked about. Now, there are possibilities, right? These people, if they go to Ali bin Abi Talib or they go to an Abu Bakr and they, they're not gonna, they're not gonna find any um, social comfort because Ali bin Abi Talib will tell them, shape up. You know, they're not gonna find a, a, a sympathetic ear as they whine and complain about what they're supposed to do. They're not kuffar. So they're, they're not interested in going off and, and you know, selling out to the, to the Meccans. They're not kuffar. So what are their options? They could go to the faction of people like Abdullah ibn Ubay, but Abdullah ibn Ubay had come in the heart of the Battle of Uhud and withdrew with his forces. And his, his group and their sometimes insolent confrontations with the Prophet والسلام, has made their camp there's a certain baggage that comes with hanging out with the Abdullah ibn Ubay people. A, a, a baggage that you might not want to associate with. Because then, as far as the close Sahaba, it's clear that they don't like you, they tolerate you because the Prophet ﷺ tolerates you and because the Prophet told them to tolerate them, but social dynamics between those who are close to the Prophet and the Abdullah bin Ubay type folks is not good. So there's another option and an option that Surah An-Nisa talks about. And that is we found that these people started hanging out with those who had a, an honorific position because they were described as Ahli Kitab because they had higher degrees of literacy and in Arab culture, Illiteracy was the rule, and among the literate, the literate considered used to be considered, held in higher regard, 
And so they would hang out with, not with Muslims, but with Ahli Kitab. And they would find in Ahli Kitab a sympathetic ear about the complaints they have against what they are being told that they have to do. But of course, you are you, you're hanging out with people, and Ali Kitab, the way they are contributing to these conversations, is, is we we know certain individuals who were Christian, and a number of individuals who were Jewish. The way they are contributing to this discourse while they are you know of course they're they're not muslim so they while they don't express outward hostility to the prophet but a lot of what they talk about um is highly problematic, especially the, 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 the whole narrative about, well, why this project is going to fail. The Christians say something that doesn't surprise us. They say, well, you know, the, the Jesus didn't do any of this. And Jesus didn't demand these type of sacrifices, although that, I mean, it's interesting because it, it, that in itself relies on a certain reading of, of the Gospels. Uh, but they're often, you know, the Jewish tribes, however, are often... Their contributions to the conversation is about why these laws are not laws embedded in the history of the Abrahamic faith. And that's why Surah An-Nisa then turns to talking about Ahli Kitab and their role. So notice now 123. وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِنَ الصَّالِحِيَاتِ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْدَرٍ لَيْسَ بِأَمَانِيكُمْ وَلَا أَمَانِي أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ مَنْ يَعْمَلْ سُوءًا يُجْزَ بِهِ وَلَا يَجِدْ لَهُ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ وَلِيًّا وَلَا نَصِيرًا وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِنَ الصَّالِحَاتِ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ فَأُولَئِكَ يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةَ وَلَا يُظْلَمُونَ نَقِيرًا ومن أحسن دينا ممن أسلم وجهه لله وهو محسن واتبع ملة إبراهيم حنيفة واتخذ الله إبراهيم خليلا. So it's Muhammad's asset translation. So this is it is not. It may not accord with your wishful thinking nor with the wishful thinking of the followers of earlier revelations 
that he who does evil shall be requited for it, and shall find none to protect him from God, and none to bring him succor. Whereas anyone, be it man or woman, who does whatever he can of good deeds, and is a believer, shall enter paradise, and shall not be wronged by as much as would fill the groove of a date stone. And who could be of better faith than who who surrenders his whole being unto God, and is a doer of good withal, and follows the creed of Abraham, who turned away from all that is false, seeing that God exalted Abraham with his love. And for unto God belongs all that is in the heavens and all that is on earth, and indeed God encompasses everything. There couple of things to say about these verses. It probably makes sense to, okay, we, we start with uh, 124 first. So, we know that Allah is going to underscore strike that. Let me see Okay. So Allah's aware that part of the constant rhetoric of Christians and Jews is that they claim with Christians that they're saved because they they recognize Jesus and with Jews that they have a special relationship with Allah, with God, and that ultimately part of the 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 rhetoric that these fellows who are who have fallen into hypocrisy keep hearing repeatedly and of course it Allah hears all is that the, the righteous past belongs with us and the salvational past belongs with us and the response to this is extremely powerful because it comes and it anchors a principle that even in our tafsir, unfortunately, we've gone out of our way to claim that it had been abrogated while there is no evidence of abrogation. It is not about a status and not about a position. First, salvation is Allah's business and Allah's business alone. And it is not wishful thinking and not your proclamations about who is entitled to salvation because of historical reality or a confessional reality that defines 
merit. The paradigm of Islam is وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِنَ الصَّالِحَاتِ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْسَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ That first, you anchor yourself in the moral act of gratitude to your maker. So you exist beyond yourself. Why are so many Muslims, why can you be a Muslim and you are still a hypocrite? Why is it that you can pray and fast and still be a hypocrite? Because if you still pray and fast and do so as obedience to the law, but you do not exist beyond yourself, you're a hypocrite. If ultimately it, it all is about the self, among the things, but this is a bigger topic that maybe we'll deal with later, among the things that that unfolded in the in among the Ahl al-Hadith especially is the idea that if if you deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by counting hasanat, so you know I do X amount of rakahs for X amount of hasanat, I do X amount of zikr for X amount of hasanat, like like a counter, like you know, a counting machine. So that ultimately, if my hasanat it tipped the scale, so I go to Jannah, and if my attitude to my, towards Jannah is entirely in in selfish, it's all about my pleasure. Taqwa doesn't mean anything. Shukr doesn't mean anything. Ibadah doesn't mean anything beyond the hasanat counter and the indulgence in pleasures. In my view, that is extremely far removed from Quranic Islam. We can go into a long discussion as to how these reports became part of hadith and and who were the key figures that played the critical role in uh, you know the, the role of people like Shabi in 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 the in the amalgamation of these types of reports. This this. Uh, uh, this count, this sort of counting paradigm, is is you don't find it in the Quran. The Quran constantly emphasizes, for instance, the idea of taqwa, or the idea of shukr, or the idea of maruf, as as states of being. As states of being. So. Put it even more bluntly, I agree with the theologians who said that if your ibadah is motivated by nothing other than your desire to benefit yourself, of course they tended to be Sufi, but anyway, that to benefit yourself and nothing beyond yourself, 
So in other words, it's an entirely self-indulgent relationship with Allah. And your understanding of Allah and your relationship with Allah never goes beyond your desire for self-indulgence. Then you have understood nothing of Islam. Then you have understood. We don't get into then you are saved or not saved because that's Allah's business. Allah, you know. But we say you have understood nothing of Islam. Islam is not about counting points. For instance, the idea of taqwa itself, ittaqa'illah, the, 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 the very notion of taqwa. Taqwa, and this, we, we'll, we'll encounter this in another surah, but taqwa is refraining from transgressing upon others. So many of the concepts that define Islam demand that you grow beyond yourself. So what is the Islamic, it comes and says it is not by catechisms, it's not by theological precepts, it's not by historical entitlement, it's not by confessional acts. You want to understand what salvation is about? It is about doing من يعمل من الصالحات or يعمل الصالحات in other words. That ومن يعمل من الصالحات Whoever does good وهو مؤمن So first the, the moral act of gratitude and that you exist you are not the center of, you are not the Lord of the self and you are not the center of your own universe, but Allah is the center. And the good that you do flows from that realization and feeds into this realization. Okay. Then it comes and responds to you know, this constant, especially among the Jewish groups that would constantly claim that Jew the Jewish laws went all the way back to Ibrahim, although not even to Musa, but they claim that Jewish laws are perennial. And that, which again, these were often Karaite Jews, not rabbinic Jews, interestingly enough. But, Karaite Jews were were sort of zahiri. They 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 were they didn't like the rabbinic tradition, and they claimed that Jewish law is based on the literal language of the Torah. Claimed that the role of interpretation in Jewish law was is very limited, and it comes to and responds to them. By a saying it, 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 as again repeating the point that we encountered before that Ibrahim, والسلام, was not yours. It's not. It's it, it, Ibrahim was 
a prophet of God that Allah had a relationship with. And but what is the entire trajectory and message from the time of Ibrahim to the time of Muhammad is Islam al-wajh lillah to now here the true meaning of surrender you don't need to be a Sufi you don't need to be a Sufi and you don't even need to know anything about Sufism to know that Islam nafs nafs that surrendering the self to the self cannot or put it is inconsistent with surrendering the self to Allah. So historical entitlement is inconsistent with Islam al-wajlillah, of surrendering your face to Allah. Confessional entitlement is inconsistent. Claims embedded in historical privilege are inconsistent. The claims, the weaknesses of the munafiqun in that they say, why are you asking us to sacrifice so much? How about me? How about my comfort? How about my entitlement? How about my interests? Are all inconsistent. That, and again, and in my view, it is also inconsistent with the point counting attitude. Islam al-wajlillah is a state of being. Remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to, when Allah tells us, reminds us of dhikrillah. You know, at times Allah says that, that you remember Allah as you're laying down and you're laying to the side as you're standing up. And other times Allah says, remember Allah more than you remember your fathers and mothers. But how do we remember our fathers and mothers? Pause and think about that. Let's, let's, let's assume you love your father, you love your mother, right? Do you remember them in a point-counting mechanism? Let's remember my father, you know, 60 times today. No. You wake up and you miss your father. You are having a meal, you miss your father or mother or whatever. You're going to bed, you say goodnight, father, because you miss your father. It comes from the inside of the heart. So when Allah says, remember Allah more than you remember the, your parents, what, what Allah is saying is not a matter of counting points. It's a matter of does Allah exist in your consciousness? Do you think of Allah with longing? Do you understand 
that Allah is so close to you that you are never alone? Do you go beyond your ego because your ego is your little demigod, right? Your ego is your little Allah inside of you. Do you put that God in its place and live within the true God? It's amazingly, it's, it's, you know, you're talking about terbiyah, right? You're talking about raising a people. And look at the sophistication and look at the, the, the beauty of the way that they're brought to the message. It doesn't say, it doesn't come and, and talk to, to Jews and, and Christians and says, you know, oh, you are bound to hellfire and it's all, it's only the, it, 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 it goes to the higher principle. Educating Muslims and non-Muslims alike at the same time. It is not by proclamations, it's not by entitlements, it's by proven behavior based on faith, and it is by your relationship to your Lord. Islam al-wajlillah. Then it goes back to the heart of the issue that gave rise to the problem of layers of hypocrisy in society. So, 127 so first let's just take the, the raw translation. And they will ask you to, to ask you about women. Say God will answer your questions. So God will enlighten you about the laws concerning these women. They're asking the prophet, and it's God that responded, is responding. For God's will is shown in what is being conveyed unto you through this divine writ about orphan women in char on your charge, to whom, because you yourselves may be desirous of marrying them, you do not give that which has been ordained for them. And about helpless ch children, and about your duty to treat orphans with equity. And whatever good you may do, behold, God has indeed full knowledge thereof. So immediately we're alerted to categories, right? There are the orphans, and as I told you before, you notice these are orphan girls. So, 
not exclusively, but it, we'll see that the actual problem was orphans who were girls. Second, there are al-mustadafina min al-wildan, that there are these kids who are powerless or disempowered. Muhammad Asad's translates it as helpless children. But al-mustadafina min wildan could be children who are helpless because they're young or could be children who are helpless because this, they're, they actually don't have any ba- any power base. And a third category or the, the broader issue of equity with orphans. So what is the, what, what, uh, what, are they, what is the historical circumstance or the historical circumstances that this is talking about? So let's just take a few samples. There are many reports, I mean, and we, whether mentioned in Tafasir or mentioned elsewhere, whether Marfu'a or like the, the, the reports in uh, the Musannaf Abdul Razak or Ibn Abi Shayba, often they're, they're um, or uh, again, or elsewhere attributed to a companion who heard from the Prophet and so on and so forth. But th- this is a good sample. Okay, so... I'll do this report second instead of first. So let's go to the. Uh, there, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm picking representative reports of genres of traditions. Okay. So. Remember that here we are alerted by the fact that, the community. There are people that are coming to the Prophet and asking questions about things involving women. But then we notice that it starts out by saying they ask you about women but then when it addresses the problem it talks about Orphans who are women and disempowered children and orphans more generally. So we get the sense that the, the, the dynamic, the problem that occurred often involved issues that had to do with the rights of women. But of what type and what kind of problems? So here's just representative reports. So this is on side. We'll skip. Okay. That كان رجل له امرأة قد كبرت وعنست من الحيض وكان له منها أولاد فأراد أن يطلقها وأن يتزوج. 
فقالت لا تطلقني ودعني أقوم على والدي واقسم لي كل عشر إن شئت أو أكثر من ذلك إن شئت فقال إن كان هذا يصلح فهو أحب إلي فأتى رسول الله فذكر ذلك له فقال قد سمع الله ما تقول فإن شاء أجابك أنسوان I'll translate this in one second So one genre of reports said that a man and there, there's there's several of of the same attributed to different figures but that the, the problem that occurred is that there is a man who is married to a woman who has grown older and he wanted to divorce her and that she comes to her husband and says don't divorce me but effectively in our language today let's let's stay married but we don't live as we don't have marital relations anymore so in, in we're living under the same roof but even in another version of this report they they sleep in separate rooms it, it wasn't by the way unusual for people to sleep in separate rooms back then anyway even if they're married so this is one genre of reports another genre is كان جابر بن عبد الله الأنصاري له بنت عم عمياء وكانت زميمة وكانت قد ورثت عن أبيها مالا وكان وكان جابر وكان جابر بن عبد الله يرغب عن نكاحها ولا يمكحها رهبة أن يذهب الزوج بمالها فسأل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عنها وقال وسأل عن ذلك وكان ناس في حجورهم جواري أيضا مثل ذلك so it was a more common problem فجعل جابر يسأل أترث الجارية إذا كانت قبيحة عمياء فجعل رسول الله يقول نعم فأنزل الله فيهم هذا so the other genre of report is this one Jabir has Jabir bin Abdullah al-Ansari he has a cousin who is blind and apparently very uh, unattractive not an attractive woman blind and not good looking and she inherited money and many Arabs when they would have an orphan like this like this girl who's a cousin or a family member who's because if, if you were orphaned often the older mem- male members of the family would have be charged with taking care of you 
and raising you. So what would often happen is that individuals, when they ha- they've raised an orphan girl who has money, in order to keep the money in the family, they would marry her. But in the case of Jabir bin Abdullah, because this girl was blind and not good-looking, he didn't want to marry her. So he did, or he wanted to do something that was quite common in Arab society, and that is simply to not marry her and not allow her to marry anyone else. And this way, her money would stay in the family indefinitely. So he goes and he asks the Prophet about this. And the Prophet said, no, you have to give her her inheritance. You can't hold on to the inheritance. And in another version of the report, he also says that more explicitly that give her her inheritance and allow her to marry outside the family. Anyway, but like a lot of this genre of traditions, Jabir expresses his dis- discomfort with the idea that a blind, unattractive woman, meaning a woman who is not likely to get married, would inherit. And so how can, how is it that you are how is it that you're telling me to give this woman charge of her money, put her in charge of her own inheritance when it goes against all of our customs and traditions as Arabs. You don't come to a single woman who is also impaired. I mean, has a handicap. And you put them in charge of their own money. And the Prophet says, no, you don't have a choice. You have to do it. So we've now met two representative examples. To the third... Okay, so this here, Qudama ibn Maz'un, Qudama ibn Maz'un, Zawj bint Akhi Uthman, no, sorry, Qudama ibn Maz'un, Zawj bint Akhi Uthman bin Maz'un, min Abdullah ibn Omar. فخطبها المغيرة بن شعبة ورغب أمها في المال فجاءوا إلى رسول الله فقال قدامة أنا عمها ووصي أبيها فقال النبي إنها صغيرة وإنها لا تزوج إلا بإذنها وفرق بينها وبين ابن عمر Very interesting report. So here قدامة ابن مزعون had Inis, um, his brother Uthman 
had passed away, and Osman's daughter is in his charge, and she is a young girl. So, Khudama ibn Maz'un marries the girl to Abdullah ibn Umar. But after he marries her to Abdullah ibn Umar, what, if you research this report, what you find out more details is that Al-Mughira ibn Shaba, Al-Mughira ibn Shaba is has the the infamy of having married and divorced 80 times so he was a man who married a lot of women and divorced a lot of women this is early on in his career so this is not after he had married 80 women or 40 women this is probably during the time when he was still beginning his because he he, he really Marries the vast majority of the women he marries after the death of the Prophet. Anyway, Al Maghira ibn Shaba goes to the girl's mother and says, Why did the girl's uncle marry her to Abdullah ibn Umar? I wanted to marry her. And according to this tradition, Raghabha fil Mal, that he he was, Mughira was rich. And the reason he was able to marry and divorce so much from women is because he was rich. So he entices the woman, entices the mother with money. Basically says, I will, you know, buy her this, I will get her this, I will do all these things for her. So she challenges the uncle's decision. She goes and she complains to the Prophet ﷺ and says, he married the girl to Abdullah ibn Umar. What you find out is that apparently the uncle didn't... The, the, now, whether the girl testified as such because... She was pressured by her mother or whether she actually felt it, we don't know. We just don't know. But the girl testifies before the Prophet ﷺ is that she didn't give her consent to this marriage. That her uncle basically said, here, I've done this marriage on your behalf. I'm your representative. Off you go. And the Prophet sets aside the marriage and interestingly in several of the, of the versions of the tradition it says that the and this is one of the you know Islamic jurisprudence often as it developed there are certain early schools of jurisprudence that became extinct and fell to the side the idea that that, that notion she is young and because she is young, she cannot be married without her permission. It sort of puts the normally in Islamic jurisprudence, it is the it is the older you are, the more consent, the more power you have to give consent. Not 
the fact that you're young is sort of actually counts against you, not for you. But here in th- these traditions, it is actually because you're young. Remember the powerless among the wildan, al-mustadafina min al-wildan, the powerless among the children. The more powerless you are, the more we must guarantee that we have your consent. There's a difference between the, 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 the various potentialities that we find preserved in the Quranic Islam from institutional Islam that developed after the Madahib. One of them we've already encountered when we talked about the inheritance of help in the, in, or people who, help, who are help in the house getting a share of the inheritance. This is another one that the more disempowered, the more we want to make sure that consent was given. And in this situation, the Prophet sets aside the marriage, and we know that, in fact, Al-Mughira did marry this girl. Now, we don't know that the historical record doesn't tell us whether the mother played a major role, you know, did, in fact, the girl not give her consent, or did she just say that because Abdullah was Ibn Umar obviously wasn't very happy about what uh, what Al-Mughira ibn Shu'ba did and wasn't very happy that he had and, and he said um, we, we, we have a tradition where he said this is the first I hear about her not giving her consent so Allahu A'lam you know this is something we'll never know okay so, three genres of tradition. The first that tells us that basically a woman strikes a compromise with, a, with her husband to avoid a divorce. But it while it might fit with yastaftunaka fin nisa they ask you about women although a lot of tafsir mentioned this report as an occasion for revelation we know that this ayah is followed by ayat al-nushuz an ayah that talks about actual disagreements between a husband and a wife and it doesn't seem to fit. Why is it that a marital dispute about should we stay married or, or, or adjust our arrangement as, as a couple in order to stay married, why, what does this have to do with orphans and disempowered so the likelihood, despite what a lot of the Fasir say, that this tradition had anything to do with an, an occasion for revelation is very low. 
I have serious, and, and but I'll save it so we get to the next area. I have serious questions about these traditions, about the the striking of a compromise. I'm sure they, some of them, they describe a historical reality, but I have a serious question about how these narratives are employed in the context of what Surat al-Nisa is talking about. So but we'll put that to the side. Then we have these other set of traditions, ones that talk about the problems of orphans and women, orphans inheriting women, uh, inheriting uh, uh, property or money. Now, what strikes us about this, hasn't Surat al-Nisa already talked about this? And what we find in numerous reports is the consistent theme of continued resistance. These are, you can't accuse these many of these people of being impious, but they're struggling. How is it that you are telling us, and that's why I chose the version that has the blind girl, because it sort of describes an extreme situation. How is it that you're telling us that, okay, so we can't marry these orphans without their consent. And many of these orphans didn't give their consent to marrying the people who raised them or the people who were the head of the family, you know, cousins, older cousins. They wanted to marry a younger guy. And they and a lot of these orphans were opting to no, give me my money. I'm going to marry someone younger. But do you know what this means? You're going to take this means the family is going to this tribe, this clan is going to lose all this wealth. Well, it's my money. Didn't the prophet say it's my money? So they would stall, and they would go back to the prophet time and time again and say really this is what you this is what we're required to do these girls are gonna have their money and aren't they too young aren't they too immature you know how do they know who they should marry you know you're emboldening these these girls and and in the extreme uh, version of these, or, or, or ver one of the, you know, the most powerful version is that blind, unattractive girl. Because the claim is, well, I'm going to give her money and she's not even going to find anyone to marry her. So it's going to be basically a woman, a blind woman, living by herself with, with all this money, Unmarried, it's like, what is the world coming to? You know, when you are besieged by what you see as radical reforms and you're saying, you know, what the heck is, is, is happening to our world? And then the third version 
of many of these traditions, which which come which focus on a related element, and that is the autonomy that these orphan girls were given. We didn't, in these societies, orphans were not put in homes and basically placed on the margin of society. Orphans had to be raised by families. So one of the things that when we put orphans in little homes, we, we, put, it's, we put them out of sight. That is why in our modern society, you know, how many people have you met that say, I was raised in an orphanage? Because when you, you, you turn it into something of an infamy, orphans were raised by the, by, within the fabric of society and because of plagues, because of wars, because of, or it was not at all unusual for fathers to die, for males to die. The mother and the child would, the, the, most of the time, mothers would opt to stay with their children with whatever home is now charged with taking care of the child within the structure of the clan or the tribe. There are interesting dynamics as to the, the money spent on the mother. Most families, if they were honorable families, they wouldn't raise the issue of, well, you know, who you know, uh, we're feeding you. If it was a dishonorable family, they would tell the mother, okay, fine, you can, you, you can live in our, uh, in our homes with your child, but you have to get your stipend from your family. But that, that was considered ar. That was considered something When you did that, they would actually write poetry and, and and ostracize you for for having done that, or a member of your family having done that, you you would become known as stingy as among the bukhala, and they would actually tell stories about you as a as an example of of stinginess. Anyway, the, but then, um, but then. There is that question of the autonomy of these children in opting not to marry the person who raised them and in opting to marry outside the family altogether and take that wealth with the family. But notice here, what Surah al-Nisa came and underscored 
والمستضعفين من الولدان so, وأن تقوموا لليتامى بالقسط so, it is not no particular positive law is going to address every eventuality the moral command is a command that requires reasonability and morality justice with orphans and empowerment of the disempowered when you read this and if okay you read you can take this language and you can put this language as a constitutional principle we now as a matter of constitutional principle we will help the disempowered child or the helpless child and we will do justice with towards orphans but if you have an an immoral society and you have an unreasonable society these principles mean nothing so the very moral program of the quran requires that it be built on a foundation of morality and reasonability because what defines conditions of powerlessness for the wildan it's rational factors rationally rationally cognizable factors in society you you assess them and you say yeah this results in disempowerment this results in unfairness dogmatism or positivism where you take the law and graft the law as is from one situation onto another without assessing rational factors corrupts the law it corrupts the principles the foundational principles of the law this is no small matter because when you study surah an-nisa and we will emphasize this inshallah when i summarize surah an-nisa all of it at the end it is precisely doing that it is telling you here are positive enactments but the positive enactments are always referenced in a frame of larger morality in a larger moral moral framework it, the, this very surah challenges you to understand that there is a moral principle and a solution that is supposed to put the moral to relieve the moral principle but the solution is a demonstrative solution so we come to a day and age where the problem is no longer that people care whether the 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 inheritance stays within a family or not you come to a day and age where that's not the issue people that's not what people are concerned with you come to a day and age where people no longer 
the issue is no longer whether a cousin who's raised his orphan cousin is going wants to marry her. That that's not the thing done. But what plagues orphans are a different set of factors. What Surah Nisat tells you is it is incumbent upon you to do justice by orphans within the parameters and challenges of your age. So in our day and age, maybe, the, and the problem is often with orphans, just simple dishonesty. People steal their money. The problem with this orphan is social ostracisms. People, for some reason, it, being orphaned is like as if you're carrying a disease or something. If, you're un- if you understand the lessons of a surah like Surah An-Nisa, you study the moral examples of how the Quran solved problems, but your heart and your soul and your intellect, having been now completely anchored in the morality taught by the Quran, you address the problems of your age and that is the, the, the wisdom in, the, in Surah An-Nisa constantly telling you, yastaftunak. They are asking. Allah is responding to actual problems. It is a response to an actual dynamic that has taken place. There is a social demand for a solution. What do you learn from that? If there is a problem, if there is a social demand for a solution in your day and age, and you don't go back to the Quran and study the Quran to ponder how to solve it. So in other words, if there is a social demand and you can, when Allah responds to an istifta, how does Allah respond? Allah responds with utmost knowledge Perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom. Well, if you wanted to follow a sunnah al-ilahiyyah, Allah's sunnah, and you respond to a problem with incomplete knowledge, have you done? Have you followed the sunnah al-ilahiyyah? Obviously not. The fact that it is easy for Allah to know everything and the fact that you have to work very hard to know some things, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is the dynamic of istifta. When Allah responds to the problem, Allah doesn't just solve a micro-problem. Allah solves the micro-problem to uphold a moral principle. That's your minhaj. Solve the problem, uphold the moral principle. Allah doesn't respond to a problem by ignoring a moral principle, but Allah at the same time doesn't just create an exception to give relief to individuals while ignoring the various permutations and ramifications. I can't underscore this enough. Because the surah begins with istifta and ends with istifta. 
the surah, the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is drilling into us. Listen, you want to solve, you want to address the problem of disempowerment and inequity. Learn to be socially responsive. If you don't have a mechanism to respond to actual complaints, if people experience problems and they don't have a means to raise these problems and get these problems addressed in a fair and just way, then forget it. Then you're not following the sunnah of the Quran. When you look at our Muslim societies, this is the amazing, the Quran is really, teaches you a way of life. Because look at our Muslim societies. Ask yourself, do people, have people learned that sunnah from the Quran? When people have a problem in Egypt, in Iran, in I don't know, whatever country, do they have a dynamic? Do they have a process by which they can raise the question? Not fear being persecuted for raising the question. Because these people were not persecuted. Even those who are hypocrites. Even those that the Prophet knew were hypocrites. They were not punished for raising the question. Can people raise the question without fear? And can people count on a dynamic where people will actually put in the effort in understanding the reality of the question being raised and that the solution to the problem being found that upholds a principle or upholds higher principles in society and the answer clearly wherever you turn in Muslim clans the answer is no. So already we failed the sunnah of the Quran immediately because we fail to learn why Allah keeps saying yes they are asking you Allah will answer okay let's pray so about just a couple of things that I mean they're not yes yeah, things that just to complete the picture for 127, before we'll move on. Um, things that... That... Um, they're, they're just um, sort of minor points, I guess. Um, that... Among the practices as well, that um, often the inheritance in pre in pre-Islamic practice, the entire inheritance would go to the older child, um, and the older child would control the entire inheritance for the entire family, and that was something abolished by Islam, although resistance continued, not just at the time of the Prophet, but even in some 
um, rural areas in Egypt today, uh, the often the in, the entire inheritance will go to the older child in the family or the older child of the family despite the law will control the entire inheritance for the entire family and refuse to let younger siblings inherit. Um, the other thing is that there was, and here we, we deal with more morality, um, that they dowries for orphans, orphan girls, were substantially lower than dowries for non-orphans. And why we can't say that that practice was prohibited, but it was morally condemned. And it was understood that pious people um, don't do that just because of someone is. The other thing is that um, um, not just orphans or younger siblings were sometimes denied inheritance, but if any anyone who were deemed to not be strong enough to take part in war or in battle, uh, as they would put, put it, uh, they would, so even if it's a male, but the male is ill, so we have a story, what I suspect was someone who's asthmatic because they said that he had trouble, problems breathing and would, um, his physical ability was very limited. He, he would uh, run a short distance before he starts wheezing. So it's probably asthmatic just from the description. Uh, people like that would be denied inheritance because they were deemed to not being able, if you weren't able to carry arms on behalf of the tribe, you were also denied and that was prohibited, um, denying an inheritance to, to those who are weak was also prohibited. Um, the last practice that probably should also be mentioned that was prohibited is that I told you that often they would prevent a, um, a female from marrying, but we have a lot of reports about orphans who would, the response when the orphans would start getting old enough to be aware that they they are due inheritance is that they would effectively imprison them at home, uh, never releasing them and deny them their inheritance, but also just keep them as home prisoners. And all of that, so I mean, you you can imagine. Look at this as numerous possibility, numerous opportunities for hypocrisy. Because if you are, if 
even if you tell yourself that, I mean, these were often people who prayed and did, paid zakah, fasted, or, I mean, did, but they were weak when it came to tradition, when it came to culture, when it came to money, and they they had the hardest time doing what was demanded of them. Okay, so now let's move on to one twenty-eight. Okay, وَإِنْ إِمْرَأَةٌ خَافَتْ مِنْ بَعْلِهَا نُشُوزًا أَوْ إِعْرَاضًا فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِمَا أَيْ يُصْلِحَ بَيْنَهُمَا صُلْحًا وَالصُلْحُ خَيْرٌ وَأُخْضِرَتِ الْأَنْفُسُ الشُّحَّ وَإِنْ تُحْسِنُوا وَتَطَّقُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرًا وَلَنْ تَسْتَطِيعُوا أَنْ تَعْدِلُوا بَيْنَ النِّسَاءِ وَلَوْ حَرِصْتُمْ وَلَوْ حَرَصْتُمْ فَلَا تَمِيلُوا كُلَّ الْمَيْلِ فَتَضْرَرُوهَا كالمعلقة وَإِنْ تُصْلِحُوا وَتَطَّقُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا وَإِنْ يَتَفَرَّقَ يُغْنِي اللَّهُ كُلًّا مِنْ سِعَتِهِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ وَاسِعًا حَكِيمًا so this is 128, 129, and 130. The raw translation, okay. The, Muhammad Asad says, and if a woman has reason to fear ill treatment from her husband or that he might turn away from her, it shall not be wrong for the two to set things peacefully to write to rights between themselves for peace is best, and selfishness is ever-present in human souls. But if you do good and are conscious of God, behold, God is indeed aware of all that you do. And it will not be within your power to treat your wives with equal fairness, however much you may desire it. And so do not allow yourself to incline towards one to the exclusion of the other, leaving her in a state as if, as it were, of having and not having a husband. But if you put things to rights and are conscious of God, behold, God is indeed much forgiving a dispenser of grace. Now, first, first, if you remember when we talked about and shoes in the case of women, in the linguistic practices of Arabs at the time, a, a nashes or and shoes when it referred to a woman as the the uh, article that Rami had sent me, which is an academic article that um, it actually it, it does the, the the same type of work linguistically it it referred to a woman accused of sexual improprieties a, a criminal infraction. In that, the same word, when referred, referring to a male, did not refer to sexual impro improprieties. 
some even said that the Quran was the first to refer to use the word. I'm not. Sure, I I haven't done the the research to know if that's true or not, but it is reported that the Quran was the first to use the word nashes referring to a male. I've read others who said no that that's not true that when that pre-Quran when Nashes was referred to Emil it meant um, a man who for for re, a man who inexplicably and suddenly turns away from his wife, rejects his wife, refuses, especially refuses to sleep with his wife, to have sexual relations with his wife, that that described in ashes. So uh, unlike in ashes, when it referred to women who often meant sexual improprieties outside the home, to a male is a male who no longer desires his wife. Arad is um, is not as extreme as Nushuz. I mean, Arad is simply um, being aloof or um now there are reports that one that a genre of reports that we've already encountered about the previous ayah that says a typically these reports will say a man um uh was thinking of divorcing his wife or and then the the wife would come and say well let's not divorce um Instead, let's rearrange our living circumstance so that basically we're not sleeping together, but we remain married. There are other reports that typically are about Sauda, one of the prophet's wives. And these reports will normally say, A class of them focus on Sauda that let's see that Sauda uh, bint Zam'a uh, that Arada Nabiu Salam and Yutalikoha, Feltamasat and Yumsikaha, Wajah no Bata Li Aisha, Fajaz and Nabi Alayhi Salam, Zali Kolam Yutalikha that that the Prophet was thinking of divorcing Sauda and that Sauda goes to the Prophet and says, don't divorce me, but instead I volunteer my nights to Aisha. And, and that he agrees to this and they stay married. There is a, another 
set of reports that talk about a marital dispute with Sophia and that it, it doesn't reach the, the, the point of divorce but that there there some type of some type of agreement or I spent a considerable amount of time on the Sauda reports. I have very serious reservations about the authenticity of the Sauda reports uh, that the Prophet ﷺ intended to divorce her and that she goes to him and say, don't divorce me, but make my days, but my, I volunteer my days to for Aisha. Um, there are, just in terms of transmission issues, I have very serious questions about the the occurrence of the, the, the authenticity of these reports um, and I mean there is an element also of of um, I mean there's several things there, there's also an element of, of, of equity if let's say if it is true that she is, Saying don't don't divorce me, but you you know you don't have to sleep with me effectively. It doesn't seem to be consistent with justice that she would give up her days to for Aisha. I mean, if if the rule, although I I have again some serious questions about the, this this whole narrative about the way that the prophet dealt with his wives, the, the, this whole field is there are some very serious questions about about the the narratives about the the the, the um uh, uh, sexual relations between the prophet and his wives and so on that to that the days according to all these traditions that they are distributed equally between the wives so that Sauda would then donate her days to Aisha, it is inconsistent with the reports that say that the Prophet was keen to divide these day, these nights equally between his wives. But aside from that, I think that there are and even if it was talking, the, the the context of the verses, if a woman khafat, which could mean not just fear, but in fact is aware that her, that her, that there are problems between her and her husband, and arad, and in other words, the, the relationship uh, that, that is disintegrating, to talk to address an issue involving the Prophet in this style is not consistent with the way the Quran has dealt with family issues that have come up among Al-Bayt. So the, 
their transmission stylistically as a ma- even matters of of uh, cast very serious doubts about and the re- many of the reports that but this, I mean, it's a larger issue. When you actually look into a lot of the reports that um, that position Aisha as someone who is entitled to special treatment, you time and again you find in these reports key individuals in the chain of transmission who. Um, who were known for their strong or clear political affiliations. So it's a, it's a genre, and when I find these particular individuals who, for sectarian reasons, would always try to position or try to portray the Prophet as privileging Aisha in particular. There are some individuals where I would think these reports are credible from, but other individuals where I have very serious questions because of their um, what's the word I'm looking for? Their um, no, um, nawakas? Is it no, 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 no. What's the word? Nawasib, nawasib. Because of their nasibi, because of their nasibi position. And I mean, and a nasibi basically that they 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 had. become a part of the power structure, pro-Umayyad power structure, especially in the early, the the first hundred years. So anyway, but that's a bigger issue. So I I have very serious doubts about the, the Sauda report. And but we do find Traditions that are consistent with the emphasis here. Look, wasulhu khair, wa ahdirat an al anfusu shuh, wa in tuhsinu wa tattaqu fa inna Allah kana bima taamaluna khabira. We normally approach when we find an ayah ending with we think that this is just language that closes the ayah but is not the normative power of the ayah. Indeed it is because look at it a different way. So what it's saying is it's like telling you the critical issue here is that you 
act with ihsan. Act beautifully. After warning you, warning you that, listen, the inclination, people incline towards acting selfishly. Is it that Allah is telling us, go ahead, act selfishly? It's a good thing to act selfishly? Obviously not. So Allah is telling us, keep in mind that people act selfishly. But what does Allah want? Allah doesn't want us to act selfishly. Allah says, what Allah wants is tuhsinu, to act beautifully. And what is, as we said, what is acting per taqwa acting per taqwa is not to transgress upon the rights of others you are not acting per taqwa if you act unfairly if you act inequitably if you act unjustly that is not taqwa taqwa is to act justly The early audience of the Quran, who unlike us were not just, you know, ear in or ear out, understood that when Allah says that that people incline towards selfishness, but what Allah wants from you is ihsan and taqwa, that you act beautifully and that you act without transgressing. That that is so. The what is being communicated is that in several situations, the practice among Arabs, and this is probably something, inshallah, that will come up tomorrow. And in these societies, it was not at all unusual for people to marry and divorce many times in the course of their lives. And quite and what facilitated this dynamic is that you, if husband divorced a wife, a wife goes back to an, a family infrastructure that, re, that in most cases, and that's why when you read a lot of history, you find that a lot of women who, in fact, I would say the vast majority of women who were divorced would remarry and remarry repeatedly. They go back to their families and their families would arrange marriages for them. And it was not at all unusual for people to marry. However, what Allah tells us about a marriage, and I believe that even that 
although the way Muslims have written their history and written their theology, they don't emphasize this. That Allah introduces to Arabs what we already encountered, that marriage is mithaq ghaliz. And introduces to Arabs another thing, that talaq, divorce, is no light matter. That it's abghadul halal, that even if it's halal, but Allah dislikes it. This is without a question with a new paradigm. But a new consideration in the surah that is named after women, as I, I think I ended one of my halakas was asking, you know, rhetorically what that now that you are being asked to take divorce far more seriously and to think sulh to find a way of preserving your marital relations rather than it running to divorce, that is where khair is. It was news to them, to, to tell them that no, actually work on finding a ways just because there is nushuz or irad. Know that if you want what is khair, then seek reconciliation. We have, some are reported in the context of Surah An-Nisa, some are not reported in the context of Surah An-Nisa, but reported more broadly, in that the, the pious understand that divorce is to be avoided. They, they get that point. And in fact, a whole set of traditions about how if you, if the good that you do is al-islah bayl-nas is to bring people together, but many of these reports are not just al-islah bayl-nas generally, but focused on al-islah bayl-azwaj to actually keep save marriages. That that is a moral act that Allah rewards you for. So. The point, these ayat are not positive law ayat. They don't set a positive law. They are even more important than positive law. We often think of positive law as the most important, but it's not. They are moral ayat. They are teaching you that if you want to do what is good, what is consistent with taqwa, to preserve the marriage, that is what is good. And even if that preservation of the marriage 
means that the terms, the relationship within the marriage has to be renegotiated in significant and material ways. Now, notice normally when you get to 129, normally what you're, what you're told is that, well, that it's saying, well, you, you know, it's instead of divorce, um, it more in, in, similar to the situation that the, the report that I read to you that um, instead you say well you know instead of um, let's not divorce but let's just continue the marriage more like uh, a relationship without sexual intimacy. But notice or depending on the anyway here it's talking about being equitable vis-a-vis a number of women and the moral refrain here is saying well if in fact the relationship involves dealing with a number of women, so in the context of most clearly polygamy, obviously. If the moral command is al-adl, is to treat them justly, but Allah comes and tells us you are not going to be able to achieve that justice. But the moral refrain here is also quite scary because it says, فَلَا تَمِيلُوا كُلَّ الْمَيْلِ فَتَضَرُوهَا كَالْمُعَلَّقَةِ Okay, so don't incline in such a way so that you leave her as if a mu'allaqa. A mu'allaqa is a woman who is stuck. But being stuck is not an objective legal status. It is an emotional status. So the question is, in what way would you be in a polygamous relationship? Allah said you can't achieve justice. You, you're not going to be achieve justice. But beware, be careful, because it is a problem if you leave one of the wives feeling kalmu'allaqa, feeling as if she is not really a wife.
you are dealing with the subjectivities of the emotional state of a woman in this situation. Often, the way we think about this, we think that what is needed is formal justice. But you could have formal justice and she could still feel like she is kalmu'allaq. If you are excited about one wife, but you're not very excited about another, do you think just by having marital relations with the wife you're not excited about, she's not going to feel like she's stuck? She's still going to feel like she's stuck. The way that men interpreting these ayat, they took ayat that are talking to you morality, and they solved the problem through positive laws, and said, okay, you know, so if you have conjugal relations with, with this woman, have conjugal relations with this woman. But that doesn't solve the mu'allaqa problem. If, and that's part of the problem that I have with the Sauda report. Of course, we could say that perhaps Sauda didn't feel kal mu'allaqa because she, I mean, but, the, I mean, there are, as I explained, I, I have other problems with that report. But anyway, Now, what, notice, Again, we often ignore these, the moral foundations that are mentioned at the end, in the second half of the ayah. So your compass is to do good and not to transgress. It's a, it's a heavy moral question. If she's coerced into a situation, she's likely to feel kalmu'allaqa. If she is forced into a situation where she, feel, she feels like she has no choices, she's likely to feel kalmu'allaqa. If she, as often happens in our modern age, if she has no real choices financially or she doesn't have a family or she can't go back to her family, she's likely to feel kalmu'allaqa. That would be upon, if that's a risk that a husband is taking to teach the moral seriousness of the question I think it's imperative because you are, it is not a matter of, well, I am giving you formal justice, so just deal with it. But it is, you are dealing with the subjectivities of a human being and the, the, the feeling of that human being, whether they have 
whether they are treated fairly or treated in a way that is beautiful or that a way that doesn't involve transgressing upon their rights. So, preserving the marriage is good. If you think of preserving the marriage through the solution of polygamy, which, as we said, might be necessary, as the ayah told us, especially when you need to take care of orphans or as we talked about, but so it can, so polygamy as an institution continues and it is not outlawed. But if you think of solving a marriage so that you stay married together through polygamy, keep in mind that polygamy comes with its own moral fraught with its own moral dangers. And the moral dangers is that it would not be a relationship of taqwa and not be a relationship of islah and ihsan. If it ultimately adds to ill will and ugliness, then in fact, at-tafarruq, separating, and each going their way, is a preferable situation than a situation where people live locked into in injustice. In my view, because bitterness and injustice are serious obstacles in the ability of a human being to truly be in a state of Islam al-wajlillah. Often, people cannot reach their potential in reaching out towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not because there is something wrong with their nafs, but because their associations in life, the people they are with, are a serious derailment from the purpose. In other words, often when you are consumed with the bitterness of feeling that you are not valued, you're not dignified, you're not respected, you're not honored, to, as we said, you need to get beyond yourself to reach for Allah. You need to transcend the self. If the self is consumed and I'll, I'll, and reflect on this. If the self is consumed with longings, 
longings that arise from deep frustrations because that not not because you are a selfish um uh, greedy human being but the longings that arise from deep frustrations due to injustice or disrespect or humiliation or degradation it becomes truly hard to get beyond yourself you 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 remain you wake up consumed with the self you go to bed consumed with the self unless you know allah has given you a spiritual power that is truly exceptional where you can put all of that to the side and just focus on allah but that's not the majority of human beings these ayat are when i read wa in tuhsinu wa tattaqu wa in tuslihu wa tattaqu and then allah comes and says and if you separate then just rely on allah because allah then will have to take care of you or will take care of you i focus all my attention on al-islah wal-ittiqa wal-ihsan and i and, and then i ponder at what point allah wants me to reflect why does allah advise me that it although as-sulh khair and that is preferable but at times it is these are legitimate moral questions to reflect upon and they are part of growing with allah's revelation and knowing what is required to transcend beyond the self and knowing the way that the self is often trapped within itself when it is trapped in a in a in an endless cycle of grievances you know it it just simply keeps going through all the ways that it has been aggrieved it, it, that's not conducive to human liberation and often it's just it, it's something that you settle into because you have no other choices or because you are too weak to change it or you know and for some people you might tell them you know like some people i honestly don't encourage them to to go beyond because i i if they're asking me for advice i i just don't have some some people are too damaged to to and and too 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 weak of will to to really change anything about their own situation um but but allah invites us to think about these things very seriously when allah says something like walan ta'dilu waynas i mean it's not to deal with this in a legalistic way and think well you know as often people tell you well allah just said la tamilu kull al-mail that that just basically allah says okay the answer to not being 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 the answer to not being able to be 
just. It's just don't, you know, don't go to extremes. And then they ignore why Allah says, and crowns us with ihsan al-ittiqa. You can't, you, you have to take the message as a coherent whole. You can't just jump, pick on certain words and say, well, we, that reduces itself to some legal rule. And the legal rule, as long as I, you know, see her occasionally and continue doing X and these rights that I define unilaterally, and to me, that is sufficient that she doesn't feel kalmu'allaqa. And so the matter is resolved. Who says? I mean, who have you, what role does she play in defining whether she in fact feels kalmu'allaqa or not? And are you willing to have her play that role? Because perhaps if you're not willing, then you've got a bigger problem. What time is it? 9.30. Oh, it's already 9.30. Uh, <laughs> I didn't go. Um, I wanted to reach, to at least reach to, oh man. I really, I, 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 uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought Sharif is not here so I could cheat and could, you know, rush through, but. God sees everything. Yeah, God sees everything, so. Okay. So what, what, I have to stop at? One tw okay, one twenty-nine. All right, you want to do come do the honors? Yeah, close the proceedings. We have a long day tomorrow. We have another event tomorrow, so. Okay. Well, you caught me off guard because I didn't get to finish all my highlights, so I'll just I'll just do what I have so far. Don't say anything. It doesn't matter. <laughs> just say anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I mean, the thing that struck me the most is just how, um, how relevant this everything that we're learning is for our times. Um, because, you know, obviously, and, and we've probably said this before, but the whole idea of like, if you're a Muslim by label, you know, th this, these messages being directed to people who are believers, but understanding that you could be a Muslim by label, but a hypocrite by, by your action, um, and not being willi willing to sacrifice when it comes to what actually happens on the ground in terms of the pragma pragmatic reality of living life, that um, people are selfish and not willing to sacrifice. Um, and that, again, the, the whole idea that, you know, we're kind of told that, oh, you know, the people who were early Muslims were perfect, all of them. Um, were so faithful and ready to sacrifice, but that just not being true, that, you know, they are as we are, you know, and that we struggle, and when people, you know, when we know in our, we know what we're supposed to do, that's right, we know what we're supposed to sacrifice, and we believe, 
but it's so hard to do it. Um, so this is, you know, again, just brings makes the Quran come alive again for our time. Um, and, you know, the message about needing to get beyond yourself um, to be able to fulfill the moral program of the Quran. You know, this is really, really hard, right? And if you live only to serve yourself or your urges, desires, expectations of what you deserve or your entitlements, that that's not consistent with Quranic principles. Um, and pointing out that the Sirah teaches us sacrifice, but that only a small group of people actually attained this level. And most human beings are, are stuck and can't get beyond the, well, well how is this going to affect me? Um, understanding that there are gradations of hypocrisy, um, different degrees, different types. From one end, people being hostile um, to the normative, um, uh, normative uh, principles of Islam, to those who are weak of faith, um, but you know they believe, but they're just unable to do what they need to do, and that we need to grow beyond the self um, to Allah. Um, just a few other things: <clears throat> the importance of the idea of the notion of taqwa, at a minimum, um, refraining from transgressing on the right upon the rights of others. Um, and interestingly, again, this is what Hassan Farhan al-Maliki and his teachings were also underscoring. And as we're learning, is that at a minimum that you know it's not harming others, um, and that um, it was very beautiful when you shared this idea of you know how do you remember your mother or your father? You love your parents, you know, you think of them through the course of the day and what you're doing. You, you think well of them you're not thinking of like bean counting and like how many times did I think of them today as a, as a way of um, demonstrating love and that made things very, I think, easy to understand. Um, going through the examples of, of the reports of the orphans, the disempowered children, equity of orphans about women um, and just all of this to arrive at, I think, what you often teach us through the Suli methodology is the point is to understand the overarching moral principle and then figuring out how to apply it to the realities of our, our day and age. So they did that back then. That's what we were called to do. Um, and it's not about positive law, but it's about thinking critically and you know, coming up with a beautiful solution that ties back to the moral principle that God is calling for. Um, and the whole idea of that being Allah's sunnah, um, solving micro problems to uphold the moral principle. Um, gosh, and then just what we got into in this last part um, about how women's feelings matter. <laughs> I guess you started to answer the question why was this called, um, you know, women? Um, this whole idea of the you know polygamy because I've always heard even as a, a convert that yes you can marry up to four you have to treat them justly but you can't treat them justly but then you know like you hear stories of people who tried so hard like they had two or three wives or I think there was a story of someone we knew that had two wives and he made sure that she had or they both had the exact same house the exact same car the exact same you know everything and this is to that point. It's not about dealing with with these women in terms of their whether it's like okay equality on material material goods, 
but to actually think carefully about how do these women feel and do they feel like a wife? Do they feel dignified? Do their feelings matter? And that's so hard, right? I mean, it's like I can understand why a, a man would be like, no, let's just keep it in the realm of something quantifiable that we can control because when you get into that whole area of subjectivity, that requires a lot more skill and, um, and it makes it a lot more serious too. So, um, and the idea of preserving marriage is good, but you have to think through, um, you know, is it beautiful? I mean, it just adds again, this nuance, this complexity, you know, honoring the human being, honoring, you know, what each individual feels and needs. So it just, it's a completely different understanding of Islam than I think what we get in, in the mainstream. So thank you so much for this incredible continuation. Take your time, don't rush. See, even with Sharif here, you can't get away with it. <laughs> so alhamdulillah. Um, I hope you guys will join us tomorrow for I think what will be an amazing conversation. And um, yeah, so sadly we'll finish a little bit early, but inshallah tomorrow will be great. And then um, look forward to Seeing you next week for inshallah. day 10, inshallah, Surah Amisa. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Have a wonderful week.